following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. You're in Mark 1, look at verse 21, and we will get started here this morning. Mark writes this, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be enamored with you today. We want to see you and see your greatness, your glory. We don't want to lose sight of you in the midst of even the details of the gospel account that Mark has written for us here. We recognize they're inspired, but because of our sinful hearts and the tendency of our minds to gravitate to details that interest us, it is easy for us at times to lose sight of what this is really all about. And I pray that this morning that would not be the case. Help us understand your word today, make it clear, and help your name to be magnified above everything else we discuss. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have ever done any reading or have ever taken a class on the issue of public speaking, then you would be familiar with the concept or the term called a hook. A hook is a particular technique that when you do public speaking, you're supposed to use at the beginning to grab people's attention, to to hook them and draw them in so that they're listening to you and giving you their attention. And the reason this is important is because the fact of the matter is, is as you, I look out across your faces, and now you're all looking at me, which is great. As I look out across your faces, I often can tell who's with me and who's not to some extent or another. I see some people are like right there. They're, they're totally paying attention. They're totally uh, engaged in what I am saying and what is going on up here. And there are others of you who are concerned about your fantasy football teams and wondering if so-and-so is still on the questionable list or is he out? What are they going to do? And I get that. I'm with with you to that uh, to some extent on that one as well at times. But I, my goal, my desire, is always to pull you in up front so that you're you're with me. And and speakers use all different kinds of techniques or, or means to do that. I tend toward humor more than anything else, just because that's more my personality. I am a kind of person who, as I'm out and about in life, I see more things that make me laugh than things that make me cry. Um, I think it's just because I'm immature. I don't know. 
uh, I, I just laugh at stuff a lot, and so when I think about getting your attention, I think humor is a great way of doing that. But other, other speakers can do different things. They can tell stories that aren't necessarily funny. They could be, but they're just really good storytellers, and they draw you in, and before you even realize what's happened, you're, you're with them. You're there. You are listening intently to what's going on. Others can tell jokes. Others can do other things, and every speaker has their own style. Today, my hook is... Uh, really, really simple. It is simply the subject of our time together this morning. It's about Jesus and the demons. And I didn't just uh, come up with this on my own. If you're wondering, if you've been here, you know where this is coming from. I'm I'm doing this because two times now in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 34, this passage we just read together, we have encountered Jesus interacting with demons. And if you haven't been here for both of those, let me just quickly bring you up to speed so that you know what's going on. This is Jesus' first full day of public ministry, as Mark has recorded it, doesn't mean it's his real first day, just the first day that Mark has put in the text for us. And it's a Saturday, it's the Sabbath day, Jesus is at the synagogue, it's his turn to teach, and when he teaches, the people are what? Amazed, because he teaches as one with what? Man, you guys are better on the second answer than the first, good job, okay? He teaches as one with authority, not like the scribes, because they're the only other people they have to compare him to. And so when the scribes stand up and speak, they, they speak about God. When Jesus stands up to speak, he speaks for God. And that makes a tremendous difference in, in how it comes across to them. And they're amazed by his authority. And while he's teaching, there's a guy over on the side who all of a sudden yells out, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know that you're the Holy One of God. He, he makes this tremendous confession of who Jesus really is, something that Every other person in this point of the story won't figure out for for some time, if ever. So Jesus says, be silent, come out of him. He, He casts the demon out, and the demon immediately obeys, and everyone goes home amazed. They spread his fame everywhere as as they make their way back to their various villages. And so they leave the service, Jesus and Simon and Andrew and James and John all walk just down the street to, to Simon and Andrew's house, and they go into the house and As soon as they walk in, someone comes up and says, hey, mom is sick. He's in bed with a fever, talking about Simon's mother-in-law. So he walks over and he he lifts her up and immediately she's healed and she gets to work right. She's busy. She begins to serve them. You can get a picture of the family dynamics, the scene and that little little story. But then then sunset comes and and the Sabbath is over and, and people from the town begin showing up in droves, bringing those who are sick and oppressed by demons, it says in verse 32 to Jesus. And I'll stop here and just speaking of humor and immaturity. There was a part of me that as I was reading through this, I, I was wondering about how this scene in, in verse 32 worked. Because I get it if they're sick, right? If, if Uncle Ted is, he's sick, he's got, he's got a cough, he's been doing something, you like, Ted, come on, let's go, let's go see this guy. He healed people earlier today, but how do you get the demon-possessed people there? Are you like, hey, Billy, I uh, want to go for a walk? Because you can't tell him where you're going, right? Because then won't, he won't go for it. But that, you know, that's fine. So you, you get him there, but uh, you know, you just know there had to be a situation when they're like, Billy's got a demon, I'm pretty sure. And they show up in front of Jesus, and, and Billy's like, why are we here? And you're like, Jesus, he's got a demon, cast the demon out. And Jesus looks at Billy, and he looks at the guy, and he doesn't have a demon. He's just a jerk. Awkward. You know, like, what do you do with that? Uh, I don't know how they got those people there, but they get them there. That's what I thought of when I was going through it. 
This is what you pay me for, sorry. Um, whole cities gathered together at the door. And, but he's healing, okay? He does cast out many demons, all right? So not everybody's just a jerk. A lot of them are, do have demons, apparently. And he, he cast those out, and he wouldn't permit the demons to speak because they knew him, Mark says in verse 34. And so two different times when he's interacting with demons here in the text, he, he sees them, he recognizes them for who they are, he casts them out, and, and this is the part that, that I have purposely skipped over now for two different Sundays, he will not allow them to speak because they know him. And, you know, we, we hit that week one, this is like two weeks ago now, we hit that in, uh, scene number one at the synagogue, and I completely ignored it. We, we did it again last week here at the end, verse 34, and I completely ignored it. I wasn't ignoring it because I didn't want to deal with it. I was ignoring it because it's, it's a big enough of a subject that it kind of needs to be handled on its own. And so that's why we're doing this today. Jesus and the demons, that's my hook. We're going to talk about it. And I know that, that I'll have your attention when I say this because there's a word in, that, in those, <laughs> that subject that instantly gets people to pay attention. And unfortunately, it's not the word Jesus. It's the word demons. As soon as any pastor, any teacher begins to say, we're going to talk about demons today, instantly everybody's radar is up. They're like, ooh. And and it's up because, well, three reasons. One, because it's weird, right? It's weird and it's evil and and we're interested in those things even if we feel guilty about being interested in those things. And so we want to know what's kind of going on with that. Number two, it's interesting because it's novel. It isn't talked about a lot. In fact, I mean, I was thinking back this morning, in fact, I've been teaching now publicly for six years, and I don't think I have ever in six years addressed demons in any way, shape, or form. So if you've been here for six years, this is your very first week hearing about demons. Uh, We don't talk about it a lot. It's not a common subject in most churches. However, depending on your background, it might be a little more common. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and there they were talked about much more as the whole issue of spiritual warfare uh, in general, however you define that, I won't go down that path today, but but was a, a much larger subject. And so it was very common for me growing up to hear people talking about demons and we've got to cast this demon out and speak a word over this person and and do stuff. If you didn't come from that background, this is new. This is novel for you. Number three, I think it's interesting because of all the confusion that exists around the subject. Most people... Probably most of you in here, unless you've got a a better background than the average person, have probably learned more about demons from the exorcist than you have from Exodus or any other, that was the only thing I could come up with, than any other part of scripture. You just, you have absorbed knowledge from culture that has, a culture that has taken this concept and has uh, dramatized it, they have expanded on it, they have added a lot to it, and therefore people think they know a lot of things about demons that they actually don't really know. You know what Hollywood thinks about them more than you know what the scriptures think about them. And so because of all that, when I, when I say we're going to talk about demons some, you're like, oh, well, I want to hear. I want to I know what's going on. Well, I don't want to waste that opportunity. If we're going to deal with this, even in a very minimal way like we're going to do today, well, I I want to take advantage of it to the best I can, but I also want to uh, acknowledge a danger or a concern that I have as a teacher coming into this subject, because as a teacher, it seems to me that the, the majority of people that I have seen speak on this in any way, shape, or form have tended to gravitate to one of two ends of the spectrum. Either they come too far this way and they, they really downplay it and almost act like demons don't even exist and just 
they don't want to talk about it at all, or <laughs> they're over here in this camp, this end of the spectrum, where they just want to talk about it too much, and they overemphasize it. And I don't really have any experience on that end of the spectrum. All my experience is here. I remember growing up, and uh, our church would always have a, at least one week, if not two, of revival services every year. How many of you went to churches like that, where that was like on the calendar in advance? You were going to have it, okay? We would always have that kind of week. We'd do one in the spring, maybe one in the fall, or something in the summer, kind of do two weeks in one. Um, and I remember one year particularly, they brought a guy in who his entire focus, his, his ministry, everything that he was and talked about was about demons, and so for the entire week of services, we would show up at like 7 o'clock, and he'd get started around 7.30, and for the next hour and a half, we would listen to multiple rock songs played backwards so we could hear the demon messages coming out. Or he would tell us stories about people who had, who, uh, had interacted with those who were demon-possessed. I remember there was one about this Christian girl who her friend wanted her to go to. I remember these stories. That's how vivid they were. Wanted her to go to like a rock concert, and so they get invited backstage, and she's walking backstage, and there's an older lady all in black on the side, and she won't let the Christian girl go past because she's demon-possessed, and she won't let Christians in, and I remember that story. I don't remember what the point of that story was, but I remember it because he told lots of those kinds of stories. He, he would read us quotes from Satan worshipers and others. He would show us pictures of album covers that if you made them blurry, they look like other things. And I remember leaving that week afraid, afraid of demons and evil spiritual things because it had been so emphasized by him very, very effectively And that wasn't good. And funny enough, to this day, did you know to this day I'm still affected by one thing? He said during that week, and it's so stupid, and I don't know why I think about it still to this day, but he said this in that week that one of the hallmarks of of a Satan worshiper and being demon, uh, oppressed by demons or interacting with demons is to do things in reverse order. So if you picked up a newspaper and you opened the back cover first, be careful. And to this day, I find myself, if I do that, I remember that, and I'm like, that's stupid. I'm just looking at the back first. He was effective in what he did. It wasn't good, though, what he did. And so as a teacher, even, again, in the minimal sense we're going to address it this morning, I want to be careful to avoid either of those extremes. I don't want you walking out of here today enamored by demons. I want you walking out of here today enamored by Jesus, because that's what Mark is trying to do. He's not emphasizing them. He's he's emphasizing Jesus, and we want to have a balanced, biblical understanding of the subject as much as we can. Okay, One final comment, and then I'll get started. All this is precursor. There is no way, no possible way that within 30 to 40 minutes of time I could ever, and I don't have 30 to 40 minutes, by the way, but I could ever give you a, a, a thorough understanding of this subject. And so all I'm going to do this morning is just really to introduce the topic to you biblically uh, in light of this passage that we've been working through over these past three Sundays. I just simply want you to, to understand when we come to this one here in Mark 1, when we see it again in Mark 3, when we keep running into them going forward, I just want you to know who everybody is, what's going on, and why it's happening. Does that make sense? So we're not going to address all your questions, but we will address a few Hopefully it'll be help, helpful. Let's, let's get started here with the question. Who are these demons that we see here in Mark chapter 1? And I, and I want to even have to stop and address that question. 
Because in asking it, I'm assuming something that I'm hoping all of you in here will assume with me. That there is another realm, a, a realm that is separate from ours, that is yet overlapping with ours. But there's another realm in this this world where things are happening that we can't always see. In other words, I'm addressing the fact that we live in a physical world, that's physical beings, and yet there is a spiritual world all around us, things that are are going on beyond our comprehension. And if you believe in God, just to make it at its, or take it at its simplest, most foundational level, if you believe in the existence of God, then you're already buying into that concept that there are two realms a physical and a spiritual, because God is a spirit. Those of us who worship him must do it how? Spirit and in truth. So we are, we're having to approach him in that spiritual realm, in that spiritual way. And there are other things, other beings in this realm besides God himself, angels, demons, things like that, that we have to just recognize, understand, and accept, assume even to have this conversation. And even though we have some information about that realm, you also need to understand that we do not know everything about it. The the Bible doesn't speak at length about this realm. That's why there's so much craziness out there, if I can just say it so bluntly, because people want to run down paths and trails that the scripture doesn't answer. It doesn't give any information about. And so I say that both as a fact and a warning. The fact is, you can't answer every question you have. And I can't answer it for you either. And it will not be helpful for us to conjecture about things that we don't have any evidence from in the Scripture, and so we won't. The warning then for us is to not go farther than the Scriptures allow. To go as far as we can with what the text says and then to stop there. Well, what do we know about demons? Well, in order to say anything about them at all, you have to begin by talking about angels first. And I'm giving you a definition here of angels just to help you understand what they are. This is a shortened version specifically for our purposes together this morning. And my definition is that angels are ministering spirits created by God for his service. And I want to just point out a few words here in this definition and give you the biblical basis for those words. Let's start with the word spirits. Why do we refer to them as spirits? Well, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 say this, that Which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You see that the writer of Hebrews specifically calls them spirits here, meaning they're not physical like us. So to say they're they're spirits indicates they don't have bodies. They may appear at times in physical form, but that's not their normal state and how that works and when that's allowable, I don't know. But simply understand that when we're talking about beings in this spiritual realm, you understand them as spirits, nothing more. Number two, notice that they're created by God. Nehemiah, and there's lots of passages I could have chosen for this particular one just to show you why I'm saying this. One of the better ones is Nehemiah 9, verse 6, where Nehemiah writes, or excuse me, Ezra is actually the one speaking here. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heaven, with all their host. The earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worship you. That means here that there is no being in this spiritual realm that is, that is on par with God. Every single one of them have been created by him. And I emphasize this to you so that you don't ever get tempted to think about these particularly evil beings, that they are somehow like many gods that are like his enemies 
that they are like vice president style gods that he has to try to keep in line. No, 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 no. They are beings. They are creatures just like you and I, like the birds, like the dogs, like every other thing that you can think of. They have been created by him. And this is an important fact. I also refer to them as ministering spirits who have been created for his service. And and these concepts are important because if you don't get them, you won't see what's happening in Mark exactly right. But go back to Hebrews 1 and notice that he says there specifically that they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And you go, wait a minute. Doesn't it say here they're sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? In other words, that they're here to serve us? Is that what it says? Notice specifically why they're serving us, they're serving us because they were sent out. That means that when they serve us, who are they actually serving first and foremost? They're serving God. The the only reason they come to, to help, to serve, to do whatever it is they do is because God has sent them for that purpose. He has made them to this end. And so as they fulfill any other function you can think of, it is ultimately because they are doing what, what God has called them to do. And, and this, is, this is really important for us to understand, and I'll pause and just say something here, because when we need help, we're not looking for help from our, our guardian angel. We're looking for help from Jesus. We're not looking for protection from, from some angelic host who will surround our house at night because we're scared of the dark. We, we find our protection in God alone. And he may choose to use these ministering spirits to do that. That's his prerogative. But our hope isn't in them. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in Christ. They are made to serve him. They're made to obey him. And that is their normal and primary function, to do what God tells them to do. Now, I could say more things, a lot more things about angels. But for our purposes this morning... This will get you started in the right direction to understand what's happening here in Mark 1 with these demons. Because when you get right down to it, what are demons? They're nothing more than fallen angels, right? That's what we say that, but we don't really think about it because we don't back up and think about what angels are first. But they they are simply angels who have rebelled against God's plan and design. And if you think back with me to Genesis chapter 1, at the end of that first creation week, as as God had had made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, what did he say about them? That they were what? Very good. That means that at the end of creation, everything is right. Everything is complete. Everything is perfect. Nothing is wrong. Nothing is out of sorts. Everything at that moment is right. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, something has changed, has it not? See, now a a serpent is working his way into the garden so that he can go tempt Adam and Eve and and try to get them to rebel against God as well. That means that somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, I don't know when, I don't know any of the details none of us do, something is going to happen in that spiritual realm. Something's going to go wrong. It could have been immediately after. It could have have taken a while. God never describes for us exactly what took place. All he gives us is just a general idea of what happened. And so if you turn to passages like 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, or if you go to Jude, verse 6, you'll see both Peter and Jude refer to this event simply as the angels sinning. 
nothing more. How and why isn't laid out, and we would be very, very foolish to conjecture as to what happened, what transpired specifically with the angels. We have a little bit more information about Satan specifically, but not so much about the rest of them. All we know is that they did. And knowing just that much can change the way you read Mark chapter 1. Because he gives you some, some clues that clarify the situation for us a little bit. Notice that when we are here in Mark 1 and we're looking at these people, that these are not simply people who are sick. In other words, this isn't just like an old way of referring to things you don't understand. Well, they probably had some psychological illness that caused them to be uh, acting out in these kinds of ways, and Jesus helps them with their psychological problem. No, no, it's more than this. There's something at work here, something spiritual in nature, something, something evil that's going on. They are being oppressed by and under the influence of a member of this spiritual realm that exists all around us. This isn't normal. This is against God's plan because he sent them, he made them to be helpers, servants of those who would be saved, not to oppress them or hurt them. And so as you're, you're interacting with this, don't try to explain away what's going on. Recognize that you're seeing an a, a, a instance, a, a moment where these two realms are overlapping in a way that is clearly not positive. Recognize also that these beings are not Jesus' equal, right? Because he made them. And you can hear that, particularly in the synagogue moment, as he cries out, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Did you come to destroy us? He's scared. He, he knows that the one is kind of like what your mom would say to you, right? When you're a kid, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. He, he recognizes that Jesus made him and Jesus can destroy him. And there's nothing he can do. He's simply asking for information. Did you come to do it now? I hope not. I don't want it to be now. It, you, you see that they are not his equal. This isn't a fight. This isn't like what you see in the movies where the priest is running around throwing holy water and is waving stuff in front of him and it's like a battle going on. There's no battle here. There will never be a battle here on this issue whenever we see these, uh, would Jesus interact with these beings because they're not a match for him. You, you see that they have to obey him. Why do they have to obey him? Because that's what they were made to do. They are ministering spirits sent out by God for his service. In fact, in some respects, it's funny because you're going to see they're going to be far more obedient than the people around them. Far more obedient. When he tells them to be silent and not tell people who he is, what do they do? They shut up and they leave. He's going to heal people along the way and say, now don't go tell anyone. And what are they going to do? Look what this guy did. This guy's awesome, and they're totally disobeying him. These demons, when he interacts with them, immediately revert back to what they were originally designed to do. They they obey him at his very command. They they obey him instantly. So this is who he's dealing with. But but I want to ask a different question as well this morning for time's sake. Why does he command them to be silent? Because that's probably one of the more confusing aspects of this. Well, you see it twice here. You're going to see it again in Mark chapter 3. You're going to see it four times with humans he'll interact with. He'll do something for them and say, now don't tell anybody. Just go and, and don't tell anyone. Why does he keep doing this? Well, let me give you three general reasons why he does this and one specific to the demons. Okay, so three general, one specific, four in all. First, he does this for practical and strategic reasons. 
if he allows these demons to begin saying, hey, everybody, look, he's the Messiah, what do you think might happen with the crowds around him? To answer that, you have to think back to how they understood who the Messiah was. Remember what they're expecting. They are expecting the Messiah to come and lead them in political and military victory over Rome. They are expecting that this Messiah will be this great leader figure who will take them out of this bondage and and bring them back to a a glorious state in their country and their nation's history. Jesus isn't interested in this, particularly not now. He's not interested in this. He He doesn't want that spotlight yet because he knows where that spotlight will lead him. At the end, he will allow it. At the end, he's going to enter Jerusalem and he's going to allow the people to throw their coats on the road and cry Hosanna for him. And what happens a week later? He's killed. He understands the the nature of the human heart and of the mindset of his people. And so just for purely practical and strategic reasons, he, he keeps this thing quiet as much as he can, particularly at the beginning. Number two, he keeps it quiet because of of the servant of the Lord motif that he is fulfilling. And I know that's kind of a confusing comment, and if I had more time, I, I would draw it out more. But, but one of the things that Mark is going to emphasize here throughout his gospel is how Jesus is the servant of the Lord that Isaiah talked about throughout his book. So, for example, um, Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 3, Isaiah writes, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he goes on from there. As you read about what Isaiah is writing here, you see that this servant who's coming is not coming to draw attention to himself. He won't even, he won't even break a bruised reed. He's gentle, he's humble, he, he stays away. That restraint will keep being talked about through, throughout Isaiah as this servant seeks to, to draw attention to God, not himself. And as Mark presents Jesus in this passage, you see him regularly referring to Jesus as this servant. Jesus referring to himself as a servant who is there not to draw attention to himself. And so to ask people to keep quiet just fits. Third, these calls for silence reminds us that Jesus can't be fully known apart from the cross. He, he's not interested in, in people's impression of what the Messiah is going to do apart from the cross. You can call him Messiah. You can talk about him as the Savior, but understand that the Messiah has to die. When he begins allowing that language to be used, it's after he's already told the disciples, uh, I'm going to be killed, and three days later I'll be raised again. before then it's premature it's not wrong don't get me don't don't misunderstand it's not wrong to call him the messiah here it's not wrong to refer to him it's just it's just not the right time it's premature to think of it apart from the cross and so until we get closer to the end jesus is going to shun that kind of language and then fourth and specifically to the demons jesus doesn't want their testimony he doesn't want it they are rebels they are his enemies he, he made them, he knew them by name, and yet they sinned against him and were cast out of his presence. There is nothing about them that he's interested in. And he does not want people accepting him on their word. He wants people to believe in him for who he is, not just because he's more powerful than these demons. Now, let me address 
a few things very, very quickly here at the end. One, Jesus comes proclaiming himself as the divine king over all realms. Remember we saw that last week? He, he is the king over the, the religious realm, the physical realm, the spiritual realm. He came pre- proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, that it was near. And we're going to see that throughout Mark. You'll see it throughout Matthew and Luke and John. He is king over all, particularly the spiritual realm. And number two, his death on the cross will forever break the stronghold of Satan's power over this world. Sometimes people ask, how can we see so much stuff going on with demons in the Gospels and you don't see it today? I'll tell you why. Calvary. The cross is going to fundamentally change the balance of power in this world. It is Jesus coming and dealing a blow to Satan and sin and death that they will never recover from. And so even though you still see demonic events today, I'm not denying that, it's not the same because of the cross. Three, we have no reason to fear the spiritual world. None. That's because our king... Our Savior has defeated it. And so if you walk out of this service or any other afraid of of demons, you have misunderstood the nature of what Jesus did for you when he died. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ, he says in Romans chapter 8. Not angels, not principalities, powers, nothing. There is nothing for you to fear because he has conquered all and he now sits at the right hand of God. Who Who can top that? Number four, the biggest danger that we face as believers is not demons. You know what it is? It's us. It's the danger within our sinfulness, not the danger without. If you want to be afraid of something at night, don't be afraid of demons attacking you in your sleep. Be afraid of your wicked heart. That apart from Christ and what he has done for it, it will deceive you and destroy you. And yet Jesus has come and conquered even that and given us his spirit to help us overcome it number five demonic forces are no doubt still active in the world today but our focus is not on fighting them it's on proclaiming the gospel and i say that because of i don't know all your backgrounds in here and some of you probably like me came from backgrounds where where the idea of spiritual warfare and going after demons was really big you you proclaim the gospel we'll deal with the demon stuff if it pops up. Jesus dealt, Paul, excuse me, dealt with, with demons as well in his ministry, but only while he was preaching the gospel. He didn't come in looking them up first and thinking he needed to deal with them. Number six, then, as I said at the beginning, you're not supposed to leave here enamored by demons. What are you supposed to leave here enamored by? Jesus. That's what Mark wants you to do. He wants you to see Jesus and recognize his power and authority over all. And so as we work through Mark in the, in the days, weeks, months ahead, whatever, and we see demons, we're going to see them, we're going to recognize who they are, what they are, and we're going to recognize that Jesus is king. Any questions about that? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your power over this realm. We, we find our comfort in it. Our, we have been bombarded by so many things that that indicate that these forces are more powerful, that we should fear them or be afraid of them somehow. Lord, we know that's a lie. You conquered them. You defeated them. And so this morning, Lord, even though it's been just a few minutes thinking about it, I pray that you will help us to remember that our confidence is in you, nothing else. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for what we've seen in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.